Welcome to Bible Answers Live, where you'll get honest answers to your Bible questions. Let's face it, it's not always easy to understand everything you read in the Bible. With 66 books and more than 700,000 words, the Bible can generate a lot of questions. If you'd like answers to your Bible questions, you've come to the right place. Now, here's your host, Pastor Doug Batchelor, President and Speaker of Amazing Facts. Hello friends, we're going to hear an amazing fact. On a clear afternoon in Silacuga, Alabama in 1954, Ann Hodges, a homemaker, was hit by a meteorite. She was napping on her couch when a softball-sized fragment crashed through the roof of their farmhouse, ricocheted off the radio, and hit her on the hip. To this day, she's the only American that's known to have ever been hit by a meteorite. Very few people in the world that we know of actually get struck and fewer still live to talk about it. But she will go down in history for receiving an out-of-this-world bruise. Anne's story is particularly rare because only about 5,000 meteorites the size of a baseball or bigger hit the Earth each year. And of course, most of them land in the sea or land and no one ever sees it. One astronomer said, you have a better chance of getting hit by a tornado and a bolt of lightning and a hurricane all at the same time as opposed to being hit by a meteorite. Do you know the Bible talks about a large stone that will strike the world near the end of time? Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, honest answers to your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's join our host, Pastor Doug Batchelor, and our co-host, Pastor Jean Ross. Welcome listening friends, Bible Answers Live, and some may be tuning in for the first time as the title suggests this is a live international interactive Bible study. We encourage you to listen in. If you have questions, you can call in. We have some lines open. Here is the phone number, toll free of course, 800-463-7297 with your Bible questions. 800, God says, 800-463-7297. And uh, we're also streaming on Facebook if you want to watch. And uh, that's at the Doug Batchelor Facebook page or you can go to the Amazing Facts Facebook page and we'll be streaming Bible Answers Live. And I am Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross. Good evening, listening friends. And Pastor Doug, as we always do, let's start the program with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we can take this time to open up your word and study together. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us here in the studio and those who are listening wherever they might be. Father, lead us into a clear understanding of what the Bible says. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Doug, you opened the program by talking about, well, a very rare occurrence. Uh, first of all, a meteor striking the earth is not something that happens too often that people know about it. And then a meteor striking a person is even more rare. But then a meteor striking a person and the person survives is very rare. <laughs> very rare indeed. You can actually see a picture of Anne and her large bruise <laughs> online. And they substantiated afterward. They brought in some geologists. They looked at the rock. And poor thing, they took the rock from her. She said, it's my rock. It hit me. And they didn't <laughs> give it to her. You know, that, that was back during the Cold War. And they thought, well, maybe, maybe it's a, you know, a, a Russian plot or something. 
And they confirmed, yeah, it was a meteorite. And then I led up with uh, a statement that said, you know, the end of the world is connected with a stone falling from the heavens. Now, it's not that the Bible foretells the world is going to be struck by an asteroid or a meteorite, but there is a prophecy in Daniel 2 that connects the end of the world with this large stone that strikes an image on the earth. And then that stone grows into a great mountain. And that vision can be found in Daniel chapter 2. And it's a, vim, vi, it's a, a vision, a, a dream given to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, who's living in Babylon, then comes to interpret the dream for the king. And that great image, that idol, represents all the false religions of the world. And these kingdoms that would rule from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, these great empires, through Persia and Greece and Rome and the divisions of the Roman Empire, and then it portrays a stone. Daniel says he sees a stone cut out of a mountain without hands, and it comes down and it strikes the image on the feet and pulverizes this great idol, and it grows into a great mountain, meaning the kingdom of God fills the earth. And this is, this is a symbol of Christ's coming and wiping out every other earthly kingdom and filling the world with his kingdom. Now, we have an offer. If you've never studied that vision, it's one of the most phenomenal prophecies in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of evangelists that it's the first presentation they make if they're inviting people to an evangelistic prophecy series because it's so compelling how accurately this vision outlines the history of the world from the days of Daniel down to our day and ultimately Christ's coming. And so we got a free offer that talks about this. It's a lesson that deals with the subject. And Pastor Ross, tell us about it. It's uh, part of our series of lessons. We don't offer this too much, so uh, this is not a, uh, one that we do often, but it's a great study, and it deals with the subject of Daniel chapter 2. It's called Millennial Man, the Millennial Man, and it's our first in a series of studies called the Historical Lessons. So if you'd call and ask for that, we'll be happy to send you this lesson. It's again called Millennial Man, and the number to call is 800-835-6747. That's 800-835-6747. That is the resource phone line. And you can ask for the study guide called, or the lesson called, Millennial Man. That's lesson number one in the historical set. We're going to go to our first caller today. We've got Nat listening in Charlotte, North Carolina. Nat, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Love your ministry. Well, thank you. Uh, Is Christianity a religion, a relationship, all the above, none of the above, or I'll pull the studio audience? Well, I would say that Christianity is a religion based upon a relationship. You can't deny that Christianity is a religion, and there's nothing wrong with religion if it's true. And talking about having a you know regimented spiritual system of beliefs, uh, that's good. You know, Jesus taught doctrine with authority, and the people were amazed at his teaching. So there's nothing lo- wrong with that. But all of the Christian religion is ultimately based upon a love relationship. First of all between God and us, you know, God finds us and he loves us and that changes our heart and we learn to love our fellow man. And those are the two great commandments are all about a relationship, love for God and love for your fellow man. Absolutely. It's about a love relationship, but you know, teaching that love relationship, you could call the religion. So I I guess it's kind of a semantic uh, puzzle. (laughs) Does that make sense, Nat? Well, I, I guess, uh, you know, sometimes people say if you do sacraments the right way or, or uh, you know, you wear the right clothes to church or, 
you say the right words out of the prayer book or whatever, then blessings be upon you. And I, you know, sometimes I regard that as religion. Maybe I'm mistaken in that uh, thinking. I think I know what you're saying. There is a legalism whenever a person thinks that by going through a set of actions, they're going to be saved by this regiment. Uh, the Bible's really clear that no man is justified by works. We are justified by faith. And ultimately, the works we do, the good works we might do, must be based on love, not on trying to save ourselves. So Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Even in the Ten Commandments, uh, I think it's the Second Commandment, where God says, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. It's all about a love relationship. And then, you you know, you if you're doing the prayers and if you're doing any good deeds for your fellow man, that should be based on love, relationship with God and with your fellow man. That's a good question. I think a lot of people wonder what comes first. And now, if you say, well, I don't love the Lord enough, don't stop doing the good things, the praying and the attending church and, you know, <laughs> giving food to the poor. All those things are good and they should continue but you always want to be doing them for the right reason, which would be love for your neighbor and love for God. By the way, how do you get more love for God? How do you love anyone? Uh, you get to know them. We know God through his speaking to us, through his word, and we know him as we speak to him through prayer. And so it's through communication, reading his word and prayer, our love grows. Thank you. Appreciate your question. Next caller that we have is Sally listening in Utah. Sally, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor Doug. Yes, thanks for calling. Um, I just wanted to know what it means in the Bible. It says the kingdom of God is within you. Like it's not going to be um, like a place. Well, and that's a good question, but uh, please don't misunderstand. Um, there's two aspects to the kingdom. You've got the kingdom of God that happens when a person first accepts Christ and Jesus reigns in our hearts. He has first place. We're seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. Um, when God, you know, when Jesus began preaching, he said the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning as soon as you accept Christ, uh, Paul says, do not let sin reign. Kings usually reign on a throne. We're saying don't let sin reign in your heart. The Lord reigns in our hearts. Paul says sin shall not have dominion over you. Again, he's using kingdom language. Christ reigns. He has dominion over our hearts, our minds, our lives. He's our king. We obey his commands. But then there is a literal kingdom, a physical kingdom, because even in the Lord's Prayer, when we say, thy kingdom come, well, this kingdom already comes to the inside, but ultimately Christ is going to come and destroy all the kingdoms of the world, as we said in our um, opening uh, illustration tonight. And we do have that lesson that talks about God's physical kingdom that will come with the stone. So does that make sense, Sally? Yes, thank you. All right, thank you very much. And do ask for that lesson on the millennium man or millennial man. I think you're going to find encouragement in that study. Again, the number to call is 800-835-6747. That is the resource phone line. And ask for the free offer. It's called Millennial Man. And that's our first lesson in our historical set of lessons. Our next caller that we have is Jason listening in Toronto. Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is when Christ comes again for the second time, uh, I understand that a lot of people believe that we'll be going to heaven, but I'm not sure if I have this correct, but when he does come again, I've been told that he'll turn the earth into a, into a paradise and we shall dwell on the earth forever. 
So my question is, are we going to heaven or are we meant to be bound and stay on the earth forever and dwell there? I'm glad you asked that question um, because both answers are somewhat correct. First, when Christ comes, we go up. Now, let me give you a scripture. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, you know, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. So he went up. It says, and when I come again, I will receive you unto myself, that where I go, you might be. And you can read in First Thessalonians, when the Lord comes, we are caught up to meet him in the air. So there's no question we go up when Jesus comes. Then you read in Revelation 20, we live and reign with him for a thousand years during what they call the millennium. And at the end of the millennium, you read in Revelation 21, I believe, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven on the earth. So the city of God where we're living with Christ will ultimately be moved down to this planet. Then it says he creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We ultimately live on the earth. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. It's an earth made new though. You know, we have a study guide that deals with this, and I think you'll enjoy reading it, Jason. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace, and it's about that 1,000-year period that you read about in Revelation chapter 20, and it talks about events at the beginning, at the end of that time period, what happens during the 1,000 years. Just give us a call on our resource phone line. It's 800-835-6747, and ask for the Amazing Facts study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace. Did you know Amazing Facts has a free Bible school that you can do from the comfort of your own home? It includes 27 beautifully illustrated study lessons to aid in your study of God's Word. Sign up today for this free Bible study course by calling 1-844-215-7000. That's 1-844-215-7000. Our next caller that we have is listening in uh, Clearwater, Florida. We have Angelita on the phone. Hi, Angelita. You're on Bible Answers Live. Hi, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. My question um, deals with 1 Kings chapter 8, 63, and it was when Solomon was dedicating the temple, and it says that he sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep, and I'm wondering how this was done in a period of seven days. <laughs> I know. Well, for one thing, this is the zenith of Israel's kingdom. Uh, I've been to the mountain where the uh, the temple is and up at the Dome of the Rock and you look inside, you can see they had a tunnel to carry the blood. So it was a big operation. They had a tunnel to carry the blood from the temple site down to the Kidron Valley. You read in um, Chronicles, David numbers the priests and there were thousands of priests and Levites that were assigned to deal with the sacrifice, sacrifices. So I've thought the same thing. I read the phenomenal number. Now, they didn't do that every year. I think Josephus says that during the Passover, that the Jews sacrificed 250,000 lambs. Of course, that's over the course of a whole week. I, I, there was a lot of blood coming from the temple. And yet for all of that, uh, Josephus says there was no smell or any insects. They were so sanitary in the way they dealt with it all. They just had a, an incredible system. Yeah, it, it was a, a big operation. No, it wasn't all year long, but when Solomon dedicated the temple, he wanted to make a sacrifice to pass all sacrifices. And I, I'm not sure they even did them all in the temple. You know, sometimes they would they would do sacrifices. Um, uh, well, I, I guess they probably did them all in the temple then. 
for that time. I know one time it says that Solomon made a big sacrifice to the Lord in Gibeah. But this is the one where he dedicates the temple. So it was probably in the temple. So you're saying there were thousands of priests that helped. It wasn't just, obviously not just him, but there were thousands of priests. And then would that also um, be similar to the, the daily sacrificial um, that the, the Israelites did? Because there were like a million people that were encamped around the the temple, the, the tabernacle sanctuary. And I'm just wondering how they, how could they perform all those sacrifices when there were so many people? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's saying that he dedicated all these to be sacrificed or, and they were all done that day or he dedicated them that day and they were then sacrificed. It is a, an amazing thing when you look at the numbers. And like I said, the only other historical comment we've got on that is Josephus. And he says that the Jews sacrificed, I thought he said, 250,000 lambs. I, have to, I might have to double check that, but it was a lot uh, during the Passover. And again, they had, like I said, they had a tunnel that a man could easily crawl through to carry all the blood that came from the sacrifice. I know it sounds pretty gory. Wow. But uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's all supposed to represent the atonement for sin, which is uh, kind of horrific. Now, that the, you know, the sacrifices were not wasted. You go to you go to an American slaughterhouse today, and you'll see that same river of blood, and people turn it into hamburger. Uh, but the Jews did eat the sacrifices and the priests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your answer. All right. Thanks. You're going to make me do more study on my own. <laughs> Next caller that we have is Carlos, listening in Sacramento, California. Carlos, welcome to the program. Hello. I love you all very much. Well, thank you. Thanks for calling. Yes, um, I'm actually from Blackwood, New Jersey. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, my question is, uh, recently I um, replied to a sermon with Pastor Doug on Is Sunday Truly Sacred? And it appeared to ruffle some folks' feathers. So my question is, how do I respond to people when I'm, you know, I make a post and I share the truth and they don't want to hear it, um, how do I reply like Jesus? Or should I not even reply? Well, you know, if, if this stuff goes on in blogs, very rarely does a person get convinced as that folks are sort of blogging their opinions. I think it's not in the Bible, but Mark Twain said, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And I've not seen a lot of folks converted through argumentation. If people are seeking and in a Christian tone, you say, you know, if you're still open, here's some thoughts. You might want to read this. And I have met people. Matter of fact, I, <laughs> I met someone this weekend who came to an evangelistic series and he just argued and derided the evangelist and was very mean and talked about how wrong he was. And then he told me, make sure and apologize to that evangelist because I came around and he accepted the truth. Yeah, you know, you can't always convince a person. You might post what you believe. Um, Jesus had a lot of people that didn't accept the truth. And I think about that rich young ruler. Jesus said, follow me. You know, you'll have treasure in heaven. And he turned away. And Jesus didn't go chase after him and shake him and say, you've got to follow me. Now follow me. You can't make a person. He gives everyone a free will. As long as a person is open and sincerely listening, well, you can communicate. When folks start to be resistant and a little hostile, you can get the idea that they're not really open. And at that point, you stop pushing. 
especially if you're a parent, you know, and you're trying to reach your children or you're trying to reach a relative or you have an unconverted spouse, you've got to be careful not to preach to them all the time. Try and win them if they're open, if you see they're genuinely interested, but don't nag, or, you know, whether you're doing it online or um, you just make yourself obnoxious after a while and they don't want to hear you anymore. So, you know, if someone asks me a question, I'll answer it. And I, if they're open, I'll give them more information. But as soon as they start just becoming argumentative, I say, hey, well, we may have to respectfully disagree. That's where I leave it. Hey, thank you, Carlos. Appreciate that. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshiped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. Next caller that we have is Henry in uh, Bronx, New York. Henry, welcome to the program. Yes, uh, blessed for you. Uh, my question is, uh, when Jesus Christ comes back, he said that the Son doesn't even know. Uh, I mean, Jesus Christ is God Almighty. How can he uh, say this? He said the Son doesn't even know when he's coming back. Yeah, good question. You know, Jesus talking about the second coming. He says of that day, and the, uh, by the way, I think it's Matthew 24. Is It's in a couple places. I think it's in Mark and Matthew. Uh, Pastor Ross is going to look up the reference. He said, no man knows the day and the hour, not, the, not even the Son, but the Father only. And so some of them are going, what do you mean? Jesus did not know the day and the hour of his coming? Well, when Christ was on earth as a human, he laid aside a lot of his divinity. And he did not have all knowledge swirling around in his brain because he became a man. And the other thing is, it wasn't even important for him to know that because he wasn't going to tell anybody. And suppose that Jesus didn't know the date and he had said, all right, just I want to tell everybody I'm going to be coming uh, in November uh, in 2030. Now, don't anyone quote me on that, but if, just suppose Jesus said that. Well, they, the calendar wasn't even the same back then, and they didn't know what 2030 meant because they hadn't started dating from his birth. And so the date would have been irrelevant if he had said, I know the date. Does Jesus know now? Of course he does. He's on the right hand of the Father, and why would the Father withhold any information? Jesus knows everything. Um, he was just saying while he was on the earth, he said, you know, I, I'm not even going to tell you. I know the day and the hour. Only the Father knows that. But now he knows. He's, you know, he's reassumed his glory. The verse you're referring to there is Mark chapter 13, verse 32. It says, of the day and the hour knoweth no man, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when people start telling us they figured out the day and the hour for his coming, you want to be very careful about that, Henry. Hey, thanks so much. We appreciate your question. Next caller that we have is Chris listening from Florida. Chris, welcome to the program. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Yep, we might have lost him. We got hey, Bill listening. Try Chris. Is, it Chris is still he still there? That's a different Chris. Let's try. Uh... Can you hear me? Chris in New Mexico, yes. Okay. Thank you, guys. Divorce and remarriage. If you remarry somebody that has been married before, do you lose your salvation? Well, the Bible tells us there are certain sins that are unpardonable, but it never says that's the one that is unpardonable. It would be reckless for us to say that every person who's remarried without biblical grounds is going to lose their salvation. Uh, the Bible says that it's a sin, 
Uh, the Bible also tells us adultery is a sin. Uh, David had no right to marry Bathsheba. He took another man's wife and David was punished for his sin. But David and Bathsheba are going to be in heaven. The you know, Bible makes it pretty clear. Definitely can't be the unpardonable sin. And then you got Abraham that he took a second wife. He had two wives at one at once. And, and Jacob had four. And uh, that's obviously not God's plan. But Jacob's going to be in heaven. And from what we read, most of his wives. Is it a sin? Jesus went to the Samaritan woman and he, he pointed out what she was doing was sinful. She had been married five times and she was then living with a man she wasn't married to. Jesus confronted her with her sin. No doubt she repented, but then he revealed he's the Messiah. So it must not be the unpardonable sin or why would he, why would he reveal himself and his salvation to the woman at the well? Right. That's John chapter four. Mm-hmm. And he validated uh, those marriages of five different marriages. Well, he didn't validate them. I wouldn't say that. I mean, oh. you know, God forgives sins. And so it would be one thing. He wasn't saying that all those marriages were suddenly validated. I think that what God did is he, he forgave her past sins. I'm assuming she repented. And, you know, there's you can't unscramble scrambled eggs. <laughs> Sometimes you come to the Lord and you, you've got a scrambled background. And if God wants everybody to fix all the mistakes of the background, most of us are, are hopeless because we've all done things we regret. And how are you going to change the outcome of every decision you've made in the past? The unpardonable sin, we have a book. Well, we have two books that we can tell you about or anybody that has questions on the line of what you're asking, Chris. We have a book on marriage that's called Marriage, Divorce and Remarriage. It goes through all the primary scriptures on that subject and and puts it together, I think, in a very uh, understandable way. And we'll send you a free copy of that if you'd like. Yeah, the number to call is 800-835-6747. And again, just ask for the book called Marriage, Divorce and Remarriage. Again, 800-835-6747. We'll be happy to send that book to anyone who calls and asks. And then I was going to mention, there's also a book on the unpardonable sin. Because you're kind of asking about what is the unpardonable sin. And other people out there may be wondering that. And uh, we've got that book that simply says, what is the unpardonable sin? The number there again is 800-835-6747. That is the resource phone line. And you can ask for the book, The Unpardonable Sin. If you have a Bible question, our phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. Again, that's 800-463-7297. Well, Pastor Doug, I think we're uh, coming up on our uh, mid-program break. Probably don't have enough time to take uh, another call. But we are just talking before the program about a, a new resource that Amazing Facts has. It's actually a DVD that talks about Daniel chapter 2 along with some other amazing prophecies. It's called Kingdoms in Time. Absolutely. This is something that we're very excited about. And a matter of fact, people can, it's on Amazon Prime now. It's on Pure Flix. Uh, these uh, major corporations saw the, the documentary and they said, wow. If you'd like to know how to get a copy, just call or uh, call Amazing Facts or go to the website which is amazingfacts.org, kingdoms in time, goes through the most powerful prophecies in the Bible and proves the Bible's true. We'll be right back for your questions. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return in a moment. What if you could know the future? What would you do? 
What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit kingdomsintime.com. If you enjoy hearing solid biblical answers on Bible Answers Live, you can have those same insights at your fingertips through the Amazing Facts Prophecy Study Bible. The updated hardcover version is available at its lowest price ever and includes the complete set of Amazing Facts 27 study guides, plus a Bible numbers and symbols chart and eight pages of colorful maps. This best ever Bible gives you a biblical cyclopedic index. Words of Christ in Red, Chronology of the Old Testament, along with Doug Batchelor's How to Study the Bible feature, and much more. Call us at AF Bookstore to learn more about it at 1-800-538-7275. The Amazing Facts Prophecy Study Bible stands apart from other Bibles, giving you the same solid answers you hear each week on Bible Answers Live. Order your copy today at afbookstore.com or by calling 1-800-538-7275. Every Bible question you have answered moves you one step closer to the fullness of God's will for your life. So what are you waiting for? Get the answers you need for a fuller, richer, more confident life. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's join pastors Doug Batchelor and Jean Ross for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you've tuned in along the way, this is just what it says. We're taking your live Bible questions, questions about the Word of God or the Christian life. We'll do our best to give you answers from the Word, which is why our phone number is 800-GOD-SAYS to call in with your questions. 800-463-7297. A couple of lines still left open. Give us a call, and without hesitation, we're going to get back to the phones. I am Pastor Doug. My name is Pastor Ross, and we're going to go to our next caller. We have Pastor Chris listening from, looks like, West Virginia. Pastor Chris, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. I am uh, calling for a friend. Uh, we were studying your study guide, The Ultimate Deliverance on the Coming of Jesus, and uh, the question arose about the comma being in the wrong place where Jesus says, uh, Surely today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, of course, you, you know, uh, we know the commas in the wrong place. We know Jesus didn't take the thief that day because he says later on that don't touch me for I did not yet ascend to my father. But the question is, we believe that God has preserved his word. And uh, why didn't 
the question was asked, why didn't God preserve the punctuation? Why did God allow the punctuation to be put in the wrong spot? Well, keep in mind, what we're talking about is not preserving the Word of God in the original languages. We're talking about a translation. Anybody can make a translation. You're talking about the English translation. The translators were people like you and me. They're not inspired. They're not Peter, James, and John. Heaven forbid, but I could do the bachelor version. (laughs) I could do a translation probably be full of mistakes. But the original, I believe the word of God is protected and preserved and God has, uh, it's the infallible word of God. But the, the King James translation, that's why there's so many English translations is they've all seen that there's strengths and weaknesses whenever you go from one language to another, especially when you consider there was no punctuation in the original Greek. So were there errors in punctuation? And uh, yeah, sometimes they, it's like that, uh, that verse where it talks about being baptized for the dead. That's confused a lot of people. Uh, it's really a punctuation error in the English translation. So the guys that work for King James that did the translating did an incredible job. And the King James Bible is a masterpiece. And I do believe that uh, it's a you know, wonderful, but it is not flawless. It's the word of God that is flawless. We're gonna we're getting a lot of background noise, Chris, Pastor Chris. I hope we that I hope that helps a little bit with your question. We're gonna bring you back up again. Does that make sense? Okay. One more one more thing, uh, Doug. Where can I see a copy of the original Greek to know that there's no punctuation in it? Well, as far as if you're looking for an original copy of John's letter or Paul's letter, we there's no originals. They have Greek manuscripts that you can look at you can even see them online and you'll see that there was none of the punctuation that we have now the hebrew did have some punctuation that's why jesus talked about uh, not one jot or tittle that was some of their punctuations will pass from the law till all is fulfilled but greek did not have punctuation you just look online and and you you can probably see some copies of some of the uh, greek manuscripts of the word of god and even the strong's concordance you can actually look up the verse and it'll show you the original Greek words it's used and you can see there's no punctuation. You can buy a Bible. It's called a transliteration where right underneath each word, you'll see the Greek equivalent of that word. I have it on my computer here. And yeah, the translators just had to add commas for the English. Matter of fact, some of the early English didn't have punctuation. You go back and you read some of the very early English uh, Bibles and manuscripts. Well, if you get like Shakespeare, <laughs> I mean, you had to guess where they're punctuating. Next caller that we have is Charles listening in Florida. Charles, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going, Pastor Doug? Good. Thanks for calling. Um, I have a question that revolves around to the last days. How will we how will we know where to go when we're running in the last days for safety? All right. Good question. You know, Jesus talked about uh, the, the abomination of desolation. You can read that in Matthew twenty four fifteen. He said, those that are in Judea flee into the mountains. And uh, Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, flee into the mountains. In the last days, God's people once again are going to be hedged in by the beast power with laws. You can't buy or sell. And the folks are wondering, you know, if you have to flee, where do you go? Well, you know, I believe that God is going to guide us then the same way he guided the children of Israel when they left Egypt. He guided him with a pillar of fire. When Elijah fled from Jezebel, uh, you know, he somehow found his way back to Mount Sinai. God, I think, guides us at those crucial times. I'm not worried 
about, will I have a GPS or a compass with me, and where am I going to go? Um, <laughs> though, I, though I'll admit, I found a couple places out in the wilderness. I made a special note, and I said, if that day comes, this would be a good spot. <laughs> so I'm not telling anybody where they are <laughs> because I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, but I do think God's spirit will guide us then. And we don't have to worry about, you know, lugging a trailer full of food with us. I think it's in Isaiah, I forget the verse, it says your bread and water will be sure in that time. Right. So I think if God's going to guard us, it says he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. And the same way angels fed Jesus in the wilderness and they fed Elijah, I think God is going to sustain his people when we have to flee during that time. Amen. That's what I look forward to. Yeah, the verse you're referring to there is Isaiah chapter 33, verse 16, where we have the promise that God will provide for his people. Next caller that we have is, let's see, we've got Debbie in Sacramento. Debbie, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi, thanks for calling. I'm going to put you on privacy. Okay. <laughs> um, so I lost my mom a couple years ago, and I've been grieving really, really strongly. And I've searched God's Word. I've searched the Scriptures because I would like a deeper understanding as to exactly where my mom went when she took her last breath. In one Scripture I read, absent from the body is present with the Lord. In another scripture I read, the dead know nothing, they are asleep. In another scripture, yet I read, the breath of God returns back to him. I love Jesus, and I'd like to know what happens when I die too. Can my mom see me? Can she hear me? Because in scripture it also says that all of heaven rejoices when one, one lost is saved. How does all of heaven know? Do they know what's going on here on earth? I would really like some peace of mind. Please help me. Okay, thank you. We'll do our best, Debbie. Appreciate your question. First of all, all the scriptures are true, and there's no conflict. When it says, for example, in Ecclesiastes, when any creature dies, you notice it doesn't say good or evil there. It says the spirit returns to God who gave it, and that simply means the breath of life. That word there is roach. It means the breath of God returns to God who gave it when you die. It's not talking about a ghost or some conscious being. Uh, when Jesus went to Lazarus to resurrect him, he said, our friend Lazarus is asleep. I go to wake him. Now, when a believer dies, they are sleeping a, a dreamless sleep, no consciousness of time until the resurrection. When is the resurrection? It tells us in First Thessalonians, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise when he comes. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's because if you have no consciousness of time, your next conscious thought when you die and you're saved is the presence of the Lord. But people up in heaven, when those in heaven are, are rejoicing when someone's saved, there the Lord is talking about the angels. It says the angels sing, the angels rejoice. Believers that die, it's like Christ said of Lazarus, they're asleep. There's about a dozen resurrections in the Bible. None of the people who were raised ever commented on going to heaven or going to hell or experiencing anything in death. They're sleeping a beautiful, dreamless sleep, waiting for the resurrection. Because keep in mind, we know the resurrection's in the future, John chapter 6. Uh, it says the resurrection, the last day. And we know the judgment's in the future. And it's called the day of the Lord. And so God's not giving out rewards before a resurrection and a judgment. But for the believer, when they die, you know, we live in time. They have no consciousness of time. For them, it's instant. See what I'm saying? Have you ever had a hard, night's, a hard day's work and you go to sleep and 
you look at the clock and you say, I couldn't have possibly slept six hours. It felt like two minutes. Yes. Well, that's what it's going to be like for the believers. It's going to be like a moment. Paul says a twinkling of an eye. Uh, they're in the resurrection. Now, we have, uh, I'd like you to understand this better, Debbie. We have a free offer we'd like to give you. Please send for it. Anyone out there, if you're wondering about this subject, many Christians are confused. Yes, it's a study guide, part of our Amazing Facts series of lessons. It's called, Are the Dead Really Dead? And uh, it's actually a hope-filled study when you discover what the Bible really teaches on this. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. The number again, our resource phone line is 800-835-6747. That's 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide called, Are the Dead Really Dead? We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. Throughout recorded history, tales of ghosts and spirits can be found in folklore in nearly every country and culture. Egyptians built pyramids to help guide the spirits of their leaders. Rome sanctioned holidays to honor and appease the spirits of their dead. Even the Bible tells of a king that used a witch to contact the spirit of a deceased prophet. Today, ancient folklore of spirits and apparitions have gone from mere superstitions to mainstream entertainment and reality. Scientific organizations investigate stories of hauntings and sightings, trying to prove once and for all the existence of ghosts. Even with all the newfound technology and centuries of stories all over the world, there is still no clear-cut answer. So how do we know what's true? Why do these stories persist? Does it even matter? We invite you to look inside and find out for yourself. Visit deathtruth.com. Our next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we got Marcus in uh, New Mexico. Marcos, welcome to the program. Thank you, Pastor Ross and Pastor Doug. My question is in the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verse 12 to 13. Shall I read it? Sure. It's uh, talking about the battle of Ai when the sun stood still, right? Yes. You know the context. The Lord was helping the Israelites defeat the Amorites that day. So about the noon, Joshua prayed to the Lord loud enough for the Israelites to hear. O oh Lord, make the sun stop in the sky over Gibeon, and the moon stand still over Island Valley. So the sun and the moon stopped and stood still until the Israelite, Israel defeat its enemies. Yes. So did God stop the sun and the moon for the whole universe, or he brought the substitute just for that area, just like when Jesus was born, the angels form the stars. Didn't these affect the weekly cycle? You know, a lot of people have wondered what happened astronomically when God did this, not only here in the story of uh, Joshua, but you also have, and I forget the passage where Hezekiah is at, Isaiah 39 maybe, where God made the sun go backwards. I mean, <laughs> it's one thing to slow it down, but put it in reverse. The sun went backwards 10 degrees. And everyone wonders, how does God do that? Wouldn't that like make the earth stop spinning and send everyone flying off the planet from the centrifugal interruption? And, and how do you stop the sun? You know what? I have no doubt believing that God can do that 
and make it all work. I mean, he's the one who brought the sun and the moon into existence. I don't think it was an optical illusion for the people. I think God basically made time stand still, so it doesn't affect the weekly cycle. How he did that astronomically, I'll look forward to getting to heaven and asking him. I don't know. Yeah, whatever day that was, if that was a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Sunday or whatever it was, it was a very long day. But the sun did set, and then the next day was the next day, Monday, Tuesday, whatever it might have been. I felt like I've had some of those days before <laughs> where the sun just wouldn't go down. <laughs> you know, we do that, Pastor Doug. I was just thinking about traveling. I'm, I'm flying to um, Singapore later on this month, and I, I leave on uh, one day. No, I, coming back, I leave on a Monday morning fly 15 hours and I land one hour after I took off <laughs> the same day. And if you take off at sundown, like from San Francisco and you're heading that direction, it is the longest sundown you ever see because you're tracking with the sun. And especially if you're up near the pole, sun doesn't go down. It, it, it's interesting. So how he did this great question, Marcos, I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, I believe the word of God and I believe it happened. Next caller that we have is Gwen listening in um, Sacramento, Gwen, welcome to the program. Hi there, and thank you very much. Actually, I'm in Stevensville. I just never, Stevensville, Montana, just never changed my phone number. Okay. <laughs> um, the question that I have is with, with discussions, we're trying to figure out when Adam and Eve sinned, did, was Adam deceived or was his decision knowingly? Well, I think Adam knew. You know, God had told Adam and Eve, do not eat the forbidden fruit. Adam did not have any Alzheimer's back then. He knew it was still fresh in his mind that they were not supposed to eat this fruit. But I think he looked and he saw, well, Eve ate it and she's still alive. And he loved her so much. He thought, even though he had probably terrible foreboding, he thought, whatever her fate is, I'll, I'm going to share it with her. You know, no doubt the same way the devil was tempting Eve, he was urging Adam. We all can be tempted in our minds. I'm sure Satan was whispering to Adam, you know, do it. Uh, you'll lose Eve if you don't. I, I don't know what the devil was telling him. I don't think Adam was deceived as much as the woman. Matter of fact, where is it in the New Testament? Paul says the woman being deceived. So wh what happened with Eve was more of a deception. I think Adam went into it a little more eyes wide open. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 14. It says, uh, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So uh, Eve was deceived. Adam knowingly chose to disobey. Yeah, he. I guess he put his love for Eve above his love for God who made Eve. And mm -hmm. a lot of people still do the same thing. They, they put the love for a person above their love for God. And I've met people before that say, you know, I'm not going to get baptized till my wife does. Uh, I'm not going to come to Jesus until they do. And they're really putting someone else ahead of the Lord when they do that. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate your question. Gwen? Next caller that we have is Bill, listening in Illinois. Bill, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor Doug. Pastor John, how are you this evening? Good. Thank you. How are you? Not too bad. My question is about the New Testament, the writings of Paul, where he talks about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Yes. And it says that eating it or not eating it is nothing. And so if I'm understanding that correctly, I'm not really sure. Does that mean that it's okay to do that? And the reason I'm asking that is because in Revelation, it makes it kind of sound like God hates it and gets angry if you do it. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, Paul makes it sound like kind of like it's okay, but then in Revelation, he makes it sound like it's not okay. 
Well, there there were two different, I shouldn't say there are two, there, there's a couple different things happening here. There was times when they ate things offered to idols because they were sacrificing to idols and believers were sitting there participating in a sacrifice to an idol and eating the sacrifice the way priests used to eat a sacrifice to Jehovah. And then there were people who went to the marketplace to buy their food and there in the marketplace where everybody bought their food, they had a little statue of an idol where whenever the chicken was you know, sacrificed, there was an idol there. And Paul is saying, look, when you buy something in the marketplace, don't ask if it was offered to an idol. If you're eating with a brother and he's worried about it being offered to an idol in the marketplace, don't eat it if it's going to make him stumble. But you know the idol is nothing. And that's kind of like, have you ever been to a Chinese restaurant, Bill, where the proprietors had a little Buddha in the restaurant? Yeah. That's very common. Did that worry you about eating in a restaurant where people had a little statue of Buddha? Or did you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to worship Buddha, but I'm going to enjoy my, my, you know, egg foo young, whatever it is <laughs> you're eating. If I went to a Chinese restaurant with a friend who had a very sensitive conscience, they said, oh, Doug, we can't eat here. Look, they're burning incense to Buddha. We'll be worshiping Buddha. I'll say, okay, let's eat Mexican. And we'd leave. Paul said, don't do anything to make your brothers stumble. If his faith is weak, just eat vegetables. Don't eat any meat when you're with them. But when it says in Revelation, eating those things sacrificed to idols, those are people, I think, went into the temples to participate in the sacrifices. It was, it was not talking about buying, you know, going to the, uh, the supermarket where they might have had a little idol in the marketplace. All over the Greco-Roman Empire, there, as someone said, there were more idols than they had tiles on the roof. The Jews that were very sensitive, when they'd go and they'd go to the meat market and they'd buy even the clean meat, goat, sheep, chicken, whatever it was, they had little idols there right by the butcher block. And they said, oh, I can't eat that. And then Paul said, look, don't get carried away. That doesn't matter. You're not worshiping the idol. You're not offering it to the idol. But that was different than going into the temple of the idols or these false gods. Hey, thank you, Bill. Good question. I hope that helps a little bit. And we're going to try and get a couple more in. We've got Chase listening from Illinois. Chase, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor John. Um, and hi, uh, Pastor Doug. Um, I have a question. Um, what does the Bible say about practicing martial arts? Um, and like, just to kind of give more context about it, um, I used to I used to practice and study uh, kung fu, but um, like my conscience has been like really unsettled um, about it because there are some occultic practices within that martial art. Yeah, you know, that's a good question, and I need to answer this carefully. You know, they're all around us here in Sacramento. There's just all kinds of places where kids go, and they learn judo or hapkido, and my son was in the Marines, and it's required. They all learn judo because judo is a very valid uh, form of wrestling, self-defense, disarming somebody. They got hapkido. They got karate. They got... Uh, uh, Taekwondo. I mean, there, there's so many different forms of it. Some of them are, they, if they start getting into the religious aspects of it, I wouldn't get near that. If they're talking about something where, you know, your, your kids are learning some discipline and getting some physical exercise, hopefully they're not going through their school karate chopping. I know I took a couple of karate classes and the first thing you want to do is try it out on everybody. And so you don't want to teach your kid violence if you're a Christian, but if they're doing something just for physical exercise, you know, they got a lot of energy to burn off and give them some goals. I'd be, I'd be careful about condemning it. People will say all oh, that can, some of it's traced back to the mysticism and then you need to be careful. 
So it probably would depend on what what particular science they're taking, and and uh, you know if they're bringing in the Eastern mysticism, and so don't have anything to do with that. And I think also the further a person gets involved in that system, it's more than just you know the uh, the exercise part or the self defense part, but as you get higher up and start teaching and maybe get a little more involved in the the background of this, yeah, there's probably some of that that comes into it, some of the uh, ideology. Eastern ideology, meditation, that kind of thing. Yeah, as a Christian, I don't know if you want to spend all your time in self-defense training. Right, right. It's almost like you're spending hours and hours anticipating that maybe someone will attack you. <laughs> and it could become a self-fulfilling right. prophecy. Right, right. Well, I, I thank you very much uh, for helping me out because that, that was kind of like the mindset I had. It was like, okay, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. But I, I just thank you for helping me to clarify. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate your question. All right, next caller that we have is Jimmy listening in uh, New Mexico. Jimmy, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you guys tonight? Good. Thank you for calling in your question. I just wanted, to, first of all, I want to just say thank you to both of you for what you're doing. God bless you guys. Um, my question is, um, I'm, I'm just have a little thing with this reprobate mind thing that's found in the book of Romans. What can you tell me about it more? Well, and I think you might also find it in, uh, is it 2 Corinthians 13? It says, examine ourselves lest we be found reprobate. And, and the word reprobate means rebellious, that we've got, we harden our minds, we harden our hearts to um, what the Holy Spirit is saying. As, I don't know, Pastor Ross may have it looked up. Mm-hmm. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says, uh, even so they did like, uh, they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. So you kind of a rebellious mind. They didn't they didn't want to obey God. They didn't want to think about God. Yeah, so it's it's just hardening your hardening your heart to the truth where God basically said, "Look, if you're going to reject the truth, I'm going to give you up to your rebellion." And the worst thing, the most frightening words for me in that uh, the book of Romans is that God might give us up and the Holy Spirit would stop striving with us because we've made up our minds and we've hardened our hearts. And I think, heaven forbid. And does that pretty much mean that we're lost? Well, if you if you do it to a point where you, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to you anymore and you grieve with the Holy Spirit, a person can reach that point. But I don't, I don't like to ever have anyone on the phone think, oh, no, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Because most people calling a Christian answer program have not committed the unpardonable sin. The Holy Spirit's working on them. But yes, there are people that have grieved away the Holy Spirit because they've just hardened their hearts and, and they have no interest in spiritual things. Okay. They don't want God telling them what to do. Okay, good. So I do not have a reprobate mind. <laughs> just well, that's good. Sure. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. Yeah, as long as your conscience is sensitive and you're still convicted of your sins, you're still willing to have God talk to you and convict you and say, Lord, help me. Yes. Then you're, you're, a reprobate mind means you just kind of cl- plug your ears and you just won't listen to God. Okay. That sounds good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's a great question. And Pastor Ross, it's probably a good question to, to end on is just to remind people that, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through our lives and life is so precious that we would listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus wants to give eternal life to everybody, but we need to be willing to hear him. And he says that if if we listen to him, he's calling us. He stands at the door and he knocks but we must open the door. He will not force his way into our lives. Perhaps you never made that decision, friends, to invite Jesus into your heart. 
you can do it right now. You might be sitting around the kitchen table or driving up the road, but wherever you are, you can just lift your heart to God and say, Lord, I don't want to harden my heart. Will you come into my heart? Will you forgive my sins? Give me that gift of eternal life. And this can be a beginning of a new life for you and a new birth. Hey, friends, we, are, we still have some important announcements coming, but we're not going to be able to take any more questions. Give us another chance. Call next week. God willing, we'll be here. And we want you to remember, check out the website. There is a plethora kaleidoscope blizzard of truth. Just go to amazingfacts.org and click donate. Keep us on the air. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts, a faith-based ministry located in Sacramento, California. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit kingdomsintime.com. Journey back through time to the center of the universe. Discover how a perfect angel transformed into Satan the arch-villain. The birth of evil. A rebellion in heaven. A mutiny that moved to earth. Behold the creation of a beautiful new planet and the first humans. Witness the temptation in Eden. Discover God's amazing plan to save his children. This is a story that involves every life on earth every life. The Cosmic Conflict. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, then what went wrong? Find out what the critics are raving about. Top scholars and theologians from around the country come together to reveal the hidden history of the Book of Revelation. With powerful reenactments and incredible visual effects, this 95-minute masterpiece brings to life the book of Revelation like never before. Revelation is no longer a mystery. Get your copy today. Visit iTunes or afbookstore.com. If you'd like to enhance your study of God's Word, visit our website at www.amazingfacts.org and sign up for our free Bible study course. And make sure to check out our online bookstore at afbookstore.com, which offers thousands of inspiring books, DVDs, and more to help you get the most out of God's Word. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org.